From the Political Science Department at UW-Madison, I'm Adam. I'm Mia. And I'm Michael. that I am a candidate for President of the United States. I am going to run for President, that's correct. What's going to be different this time? We're going to win. We are going to win. I'm the son of South Bend, Indiana, and I am running for President of the United States. In this podcast series, we will speak with UW-Madison faculty members and other campaign and election experts and hear their insight into the 2020 election. And we will make America great again. This is the United States of America. There has never... To announce my candidacy for president of... This is 1050 Bascom, election 2020. Today on our second episode of our 1050 Bascom Election 2020 series, we welcome Professor John Zimbrennan, the chair of the Political Science Department here at UW-Madison and the director of the American Democracy Forum. Prof Zimbrennan is teaching contemporary American political theory this semester with a focus on leadership and democratic rhetoric. We will ask Professor Zimbrennan about his views on the contemporary primary systems as a means of electing a democratic leader. We'll also ask him about his take on why some candidates' rhetoric seems more effective in conveying strong leadership in contemporary politics compared to other candidates' approaches to gaining a public following. Thank you so much for being on the podcast, Professor Zimbrennan. Well, thanks so much uh, for having me, and and thanks to uh, you all for doing this series. I know that uh, a lot of our faculty are looking forward to coming and chatting with you as the election season unfolds, and I know our students like listening to this podcast, and for me as department chair, it's a a wonderful way for me to share um, what's going on here on campus with uh, our alums and other friends of the department, So, uh, so thanks so much for doing it. So let's get into it. Your research and teaching has focused and focuses a lot on the role of the people in democracy. Can you tell us a little bit about that and maybe in the context of the contemporary primary elections? Sure. So, you know, the development of the primary system in the U.S. really got going back in the progressive era uh, in the early 20th century. And it was seen as a way to democratize the nomination process, to take some of the power out of the hands of party elites and give it directly to the rank-and-file party members. And and so, again, seen really as a way to, to give power to the people. So for me as a political theorist, and as you said, I, I've written a, a fair amount about ideas of the people and democracy, and I've done that really mostly in the context of ancient Greek democracy, ancient Greek political thought. So, so for me, it's always good when we're thinking about the connection between the people, democracy, and elections to step back and remind ourselves that in that ancient Greek context, the very idea of election was actually seen as anti-democratic. Now, that's, that's a kind of hmm. paradoxical thing, right. kind of makes you wonder what on earth I'm saying. <laughs> so for the Greeks, democracy was fundamentally based on the idea of equality, and, and the idea of equality being that any individual citizen was equally capable of holding and exercising political power. And so there were many instances in which the ancient Athenians, um, instead of voting for office holders, would um, draw names out of a piece of pottery. And so they're randomly choosing by lot who's going to hold uh, political power, who's going to hold a particular office. They, they didn't always do this. They, When they chose generals to lead their armies into war, they would elect those generals. 
And their idea there was, here's a particular political office where we specifically need mm -hmm. a kind of expertise, and we can figure out who is best qualified to do that work for us. But otherwise, the idea was we're a democracy, and any of us is as good as anyone else at exercising power. So there's this deep background for me that as much as we try to make elections democratic, they are always about choosing from amongst the citizenry someone who we think is best able or most fit to hold this position. Um, you mentioned also that sort of their, the idea of democracy in that context was that people are equally capable of exercising political power. Right. I'm trying to think of that sort of in our contemporary U.S. American politics context, and I think about the electoral college system. Right. So maybe how do you think the people, how you understand it as a political theorist, are represented in choosing presidential candidates given that electoral college system? I tend to think of the people as something that we create through politics. So it's not the case that there is something that exists out there beyond us that's called the American people, and then we see how well it's reflected. Um, the notion of the American people is a term of political art. It's a subject of controversy. And so what we see in elections is we see people claiming to we see candidates claiming to represent the people and mobilize the idea of the people on their behalf. And then with an institutional scheme like the Electoral College, what we've got is we've got, you know, uh, an, an, we've got an institution and a process that claims that it's a legitimate way to reflect the will of the people, mm -hmm. right? And so, you know, the, the, the people who create the Electoral College, the authors of the Constitution, they don't think that the best way to reflect the will of the people is simply to allow the people to vote. And that's because they have um, a very mixed view of the nature of the people, right? So the people, on the one hand, are the source of knowledge and wisdom and virtue. And on the other hand, at any particular moment, we can't trust any particular group of people to be wise or knowledgeable or virtuous, right? And so what we need to do is filter that public opinion through a group of people who will be um, less immediately interested in the outcome, more likely to take the long view, more likely to uh, to uh, pursue the common good. So the Electoral College at its core was an elitist institution, right? It's meant to refine um, the will of the people and ensure um, a better selection for president. So I, I think it's, you know, whatever else we want to say, it's hard to argue that the Electoral College was meant to be a democratic institution. And mm -hmm. so it's, it's, it's little wonder, given that it was created that way, that at times the outcome from the Electoral College doesn't fit with the popular vote. And then, of course, we have to step back and say the popular vote. So, so what does the popular vote represent? It represents the people who on a particular Tuesday in November decided to go to the polling place and vote, right? And we know that there's, that there's formal barriers through the registration system to vote. We know that there's informal costs to voting um, that keep some people from voting. And we know that there are patterns in who is more likely to be um, held up by those obstacles and so not vote, right? Mm -hmm. So somebody like me who sits at the intersection of a whole bunch of different kinds of privilege in my life, right? So I'm a, a, a white male, middle-aged uh, father of four uh, with a PhD and an incredibly flexible job, right? Mm -hmm. It's really easy for me to go vote. I just block off that morning on my calendar and don't come to the office until later, right? Right. Um, and nobody's going to tell me that it's a problem, 
for me to go vote. And it's just, you know, so I think we always have to pay attention again to the fact that the people is this um, abstraction that sits out there that theoretically we want to have represented in our politics, but our institutions and our processes are always giving us some particular version of the people. And that's that's what the Electoral College does. I'm not making an argument for the Electoral College. <laughs> yeah. my, my own feeling is that it's, um, you know, it was... Uh, uh, a faulty attempt to establish a process, an orderly process for electing the president that immediately failed, Mm. right? As soon as there was competition for the office of the presidency, the electoral college started to fail. And by 1800, it's a clear failure. And, you know, they're desperately trying to find ways to fix it. And that happens again in the 1820s. Um, And, you know, we have seen in my lifetime, you know, multiple elections where there was a difference between the popular vote and the Electoral College. Mm -hmm. You know, I think there's just a really good argument that the Electoral College is outmoded. Right. And it's even like a a policy position of some candidates now you see down the debate stage popping up. Yeah. So back to today's politics. For the last couple of months, Biden, Sanders, Warren and Buttigieg have all been top tier candidates. Are you able to look at their campaigns and their rhetoric and say, like, yeah, this makes sense why they resonate with more of the people, in air quotes, than others. Yeah, so listeners can't see, but you actually put that in air quotes, and I would too, the notion of the people. And so, again, this is the political theorist dodge here, which is that it depends on what we mean by the people. And part of what, you know, the way I would think about what those various candidates are doing is they're trying to tell us who the people are and... They're trying to do that through their rhetoric, right? So um, Bernie Sanders has one argument about who the people are. Um, In many ways, by and large, that seems similar to me to the vision of the people that Elizabeth Warren has. And so it's kind of an argument between the two of them about who best represents the people, who is best able to act on their notion of the people. I think Biden has a different understanding of who the American people are. Um, Again, I say he has a different understanding. I don't know what he really thinks. I can listen to his rhetoric and see that he's offering up a different vision of who the American people are and what they can be in the future. So that's the way I take that question is that these folks are engaged in the practice of political rhetoric. Their goal is to um, win an election I guess, win a series of elections and then the big election. And in doing that, they're going to try to mobilize a vision of the people. And you think about what they're trying to do in mobilizing that. I mean, one simple thing they're trying to say to to folks is, I see you and I think of you as the American people, right? That's one aspect of it. And then the other aspect of it is they're also trying to appeal to another set of folks who have a set of political commitments and um, so think, for instance, about if uh, think, for instance, about you know the idea of um, a free college for everyone, right? Um, which is you know you, you, that, that the idea of free college is trying to appeal to a certain notion of what it means to be an American and what the the promise of opportunity holds for Americans, and it wants everybody in some sense to ha- to participate in that. And you know, I mean, again, one way I think about that argument is it's meant to it's meant to pull in a a group of individuals who might have seen themselves excluded from an aspect of of opportunity in America, and say so you're part of the people too, and we want to create this program. On the other hand, it's also meant to appeal to someone like me who, you know, I mean, I have a college degree, an advanced 
degree. My wife has a college degree, an advanced degree. Our children are in a position where they all assume they're going to go to college. We're going to have the financial resources to make that possible. Uh, Free college for us sounds nice. On some level, it's not necessary. But, you know, people who are arguing for that are trying to fold me in to a vision of the people with folks who might struggle to pay for college for their kids or who might never think of sending their... So they're trying to construct that notion of the people that I'm part of, even though the policy isn't directed just at me. Um, So, you know, these are, in terms of of how this resonates, you know, we're talking about Democrats, but Donald Trump's trying to do the same thing, right? Like, I mean, he he claims to be speaking on behalf of the American people. Um, And so they all have their different visions of the people. So, so... You know, partly this is a matter of whose rhetoric resonates the most. Partly it's a matter of political coalition building. And can you advance a kind of rhetoric that will mobilize a coalition um, to support you? But this idea of the people, again, I want to suggest there's not a reality that exists independent of that rhetoric. (laughs) So this is what it's like taking a class with me. (laughs) There are no answers. You you mentioned Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders are kind of vying for the same spot, trying to fight for the same category of the people, while Joe Biden is kind of targeting a different. Do you see that as kind of the progressive moderate divide or is that something different? It makes sense to me to think of that as a progressive moderate divide. In general, it makes sense. Or if you want to call it progressive and liberal it makes yeah, sense in better. that way as well, and I think it's I think it's pe- appealing, trying to appeal to different segments of of uh, the American people, trying to mobilize different notions of the American people. It's also, I mean, so yeah, I also take these people at their word that there is, you know, there's a sort of sincere different vision behind that, but there's also a political calculation there, like how are you going to win? How are you going to position yourself to win? the general election in November, right? Absolutely. And so I think with, you know, with Sanders and Warren, there's more of a vision of a new way of mobilizing a different constituency, including people who have been less likely to vote. And I mean, I think obviously with with Bernie, it's clearly young people trying to mobilize them. And with someone like Biden, with that more moderate establishment Democrat, you know, there's more of a bet on trying to win the middle. Um, and I mean, that's just going to be an ongoing argument on, uh, among the Democrats and, and we'll see. And, and the same things there among Republicans, we don't see that much division among Republicans, but if you go back to even the, the primary season in 2016, right, is this about turning out the so-called Republican base or is it about trying to expand into the middle? And I think you can clearly see that Donald Trump as president and as candidate is going to be focused on mobilizing the base. Then one final follow-up to that. Is there anyone that you are surprised hasn't gained more traction among the people? I'm thinking of particularly like Andrew Yang or the billionaire candidates Tom Steyer and Michael Bloomberg. Yeah. Well, Bloomberg lately has been... um, has been climbing up in the polls, right? It's a very, yeah. in the national polls, it's a very fascinating thing. He's the only one on the air in a lot of states, and I mean, yeah. he's on the air a lot. I mean, I he, get his, his ads on Oh, YouTube. yeah. And I mean, he himself has vastly outspent the other candidates, except for Steyer, put together, right? Um, so I thought Kamala Harris might catch on mm-hmm. a little more than, than she did. Um, I think, you know, just 
tactically and strategically she was in a in a challenging position but I actually thought she might catch on I thought Cory Booker might catch on a little more uh than he did you know I think what we're seeing is um some version of that kind of moderate progressive or liberal progressive split in the party if it's a split I'm not 100 sure 100 percent sure it's a split beyond the campaigns and their right. most fervent supporters um but yeah, I think we're seeing that. And, you know, if I were going to predict, you would expect that one candidate from each of those are going to be the final two who are going to be competing with each other. Absolutely. Come mid-March. If even Bur- that late. Right. <laughs> Bernie and Biden or Warren and Biden. So that's interesting. You left Pete Buttigieg out of that. I did. I guess the latest polls you see in New Hampshire suggest that he might make a run there. But if he doesn't do something in, in, Iowa, and in Iowa or New Hampshire, I just don't see that he's going to have the the uh, the ability to go on. I mean, part of this is just is just yeah. money. Yeah. yeah. If you don't have the money to campaign and to have staff, you're just not going to be able to continue. You got, you got to have money to fly all around the country, too. And if you don't have that, you're not going to keep campaigning. Yeah. How does the modern social media and cable news environment interact with the primary system, and has it evolved in helping to produce presidential candidates who better represent the people? I did air quotes, too. Yeah, I know. (laughs) know. I've got to figure out how to. So I think the common story about the contemporary media is that it's, that that our politics is polarized and that the American citizenry seems to be increasingly polarized insofar as it's engaged with politics, right? And so we all have our... um, we all have our sources of news that we follow, and increasingly we don't follow um, sources of news that seem to have um, a bias or a leaning against uh, against ours. And and I mean, in all honesty, I am a hundred percent typical of that. So I have the news sources that I follow, and um, and I don't pay a lot of attention to what for me is the other side um, without talking at this point about what that side might be because I think if I were on the other side of the political aisle it would probably be the same way for me Um, you know the other thing I will just tell you that's been interesting in my experience so when I was uh, when I was a kid I followed politics very closely Um, that was you know way back in the 1980s and then following politics closely meant watching the network news and reading time and newsweek when they came around once a week in my parents' mailbox. Um, And then with the advent of cable news, I started watching a lot of cable news. I will tell you that in the last few years, I have almost stopped watching um, uh, television news. I I just, even when it's people talking who I agree with, I don't, I can't stomach it. (laughs) It's too much for me. Um, So, you know, I have my, set of newspapers that I read, but I'll put that in air quotes because it's not like I sit down and read them um, clear through. And I, I mean, I follow a group of people on Twitter who, for whatever reason, I, uh, for whatever reason, I've come to trust. And I think that's what a lot of Americans are doing. Um, and I don't know, I guess I'm of two minds. There's the historian in me that thinks that that's not that unusual in the history of uh, politics in the United States, that 
that if anything's unusual, it's that period from, say, 1950 until, what, 1990 or so, where there was the big three television networks, and they were pretty much presenting the same political reality to you, and they were challenged very far on the margins, uh, by which I mean they weren't seriously challenged by alternative news sources that were always present for people who wanted to sort to, to seek them out. And now we've returned to a much more partisan news media and partisan press, which is if you go back, go look at the election of 1800 with Jefferson and Adams, you're going to see exactly that kind of um, of polarized information environment, if you will. So there's part of me that's drawn to that kind of let's provide some historical context and realize that isn't that unusual. And another part of me that thinks it's horrible um, and that it has managed to make political conversation next to impossible. Do you think that this evolution of more divided media environments has made the presidential candidates and the ones that are lifted up in these environments better representative of the people or less so? They may be more closely attuned to what will resonate with the particular audiences they're trying to appeal to. So their their rhetoric might look more responsive in that way. Whether or not that's what we mean by representative, I'm not sure. Whether it means that they are broadly representative of a diverse group of people, probably not, right? I mean, the reality is that, um, you know, a conservative politician or a progressive politician are by and large not going to be messaging for the other side. Right. They're going to be focused on on their groups because they know that's where they're going to get the media attention. And, you know, so that that makes political sense. How do you think the focus on leadership and presidential candidates has evolved in your lifetime? And what has good leadership in the presidency looked like? So the the question about the, the focus on leadership and sort of qualities of leadership and how we evaluate leaders I, I don't know how much that has changed in my lifetime. I think it's clearly the case that we know a lot more of the fine-grained details of our leaders' lives than we used to, right? And our leaders are in more constant communication with us than they used to be. I mean, the difference between Donald Trump tweeting multiple times a day and, say, for instance, Ronald Reagan who I might have heard from, obviously not directly, but I might have heard say something on the television news maybe every day, but most likely not, right? Like there'd be a report about him, but his voice wouldn't be in my ear. So, I I mean, that has definitely changed, and I think that leads inevitably to a different way of us engaging with leaders that, in all honesty, I don't necessarily think is healthy. Right. I I think obsessing over the exact words that somebody says every time they say some small thing is not particularly healthy. I think one dynamic that I think is the same now that is really interesting to me on this score when we think about like how do we engage with leaders and how do we judge leadership? I think we have a real tendency as citizens and our leaders have a real tendency to as speakers to present leadership as a matter of substantive policy agreement. So how do I choose whether to support Trump or Biden or Bernie or somebody else, right? I look at their policy positions and I see where their policy positions match up with mine, right? Like we, we, and that political scientists often have thought about like rational voting as that kind of um, matching policy views. So one thing to say about that is that we act as if that's true 
and we talk as if that's how we make decisions. And of course, it's not totally how we make decisions. So here, random side story for you. When I was in eighth grade, um, there was the 1984 uh, presidential election. So this is Ronald Reagan running for re-election. Walter Mondale is uh, nominated uh, by the Democrats. And we had a mock election in my school, and we had an assembly. And I was asked to speak on behalf of the Mondale-Ferraro ticket. And my friend Todd was uh, asked to speak on behalf of Reagan-Bush. So I went down to the local Democratic Party headquarters, and I got a copy of the Democratic Party platform. And I gave this amazingly policy-specific speech. Like, I covered every policy area. I knew the issues inside and out. And my friend Todd gets up and tells jokes, right? Um, it is the case that in my, in my middle school, uh, much as in the presidential election that year, Mondale Ferraro carried uh, one classroom, which was my home classroom, uh, and Reagan carried the rest of the school. So it all fit and, uh, very well. And, and at the time, I was kind of insulted, right? Like, oh, my gosh, look, I gave you this really, you know, policy specific, very well thought out, um, very detailed speech, and the affable jokester wins. Um, and, and I look at that, and, and, you know, so as much as we think about evaluating leaders as a matter of do they agree with us on policy, there's always those other factors going on. And I increasingly think that um, we, we miss something with either one of those ways of proceeding, right? Like, obviously, if we're just voting on personality, that's got some problems. But the policy agreement thing's really interesting, too, right? Because the job of being president or any other political leader or any other leader is only partly about the substance. It's only partly about the content of what you're going to do or not do, right? It also is about, do you have the skills to make it happen, right? And that's partly about political skills for an executive office like president or mayor or governor. It's also about some managerial skills, like you're going to be in charge of a large organization. If you're president of the United States, you're going to be in charge of a massive organization. And you're going to have very little knowledge of what's actually happening in that organization, the federal government. You're going to have very, very imperfect means of control. So how are you going to handle that, right? Like, how are you going to deal with that management and leadership challenge? And I don't think we do a particularly good job of asking those questions or thinking about those questions. And so sometimes when people fall into the arguing over the fine-grained details of um, this Democrat's health care policy proposal versus this Democrat's health care policy proposal, I'm just not convinced that's the best way to evaluate leaders. Right. So in election 2020, um, you just mentioned it with uh, health care, one policy example. There's been a large amount of scrutiny on candidate specific policy ideas, maybe more so than previous cycles. Um, we've been talking about universal basic income, Medicare for all, the Green New Deal, child care, marijuana legislation, a lot of things making the debate stage and making headlines. How do you see this playing out for the candidates? Is this something good or, or positive? I mean, again, I think it's by and large positive. I think us, uh, you know, there are issues that we have not talked enough about that we should talk about, mm -hmm. right? Uh, I mean, I think healthcare has been one of these throughout my life. We were talking about the number of uninsured people. Um, again, when I was in grade school, that was a political issue. Um, 
in climate change. I, I was part of a future problem solvers team when I was in seventh grade. And the, the challenge for that year was the greenhouse gas effect. I mean, it was climate change, yeah. right? And um, it's been a long time since I was in middle school. Uh, so this is just to say that there are some issues out there that have been around for decades, and the more we engage with them in a detailed, fine-grained way, I think is incredibly important. Um, and as soon as I say that, I want to go back and say that we want to be careful not to fall into such fine-grained debates and disputes and such heated disputes over particular policy solutions that we don't do anything. Those fine-grained policy arguments on specific things, whatever it is, are incredibly valuable and important as long as they don't become either so fine-grained or so bitter that we can't move on and do things. Okay. So we don't want to know who. Yeah. Have you decided who you are going to vote for in the primary? (laughs) (laughs) We don't want to know who. Well, I mean, I, I personally want to know, but I don't. I, I think the honest answer to that is no. Interesting. I probably know, but part of that will depend on how the process unfolds between now and then. All right. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today and imparting your wisdom and your experience in the political science department and looking forward to sharing this with our listeners. Yeah, thank you so much for uh, sitting down and chatting with me and uh, good luck with the rest of the series. We look forward to it.